Revelation chapter 7 is, as we saw, an interlude in the opening up of the seven seals. It serves as a dramatic pause. And what it does is it gives us a glimpse into the state of the church as seen from God's perspective. And last week, in the first half of this chapter, we looked at the church as the army of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The church was symbolically described as the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the company of those sealed, that is, kept and protected through the tribulations unleashed in the earth. And as such, they are the ones, in answer to the martyr's question of who can stand, they are the ones who shall stand. And today we come to the second scene in chapter 7, beginning of verse 9. And while John doesn't move, the multitude he sees is no longer sealed on earth, but they're worshiping in heaven. And so we're going to make three points here. They're there in your outline. The victory, the tribulation, and the consummation. The victory, the tribulation, and the consummation. So first, the victory. Verse 9, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, begins, After this I looked. Now, we have not mentioned it yet, but there's an important pattern, a kind of literary cue, uh, an indicator that happens throughout the book where John hears something, he's told something, and then he turns to see. He hears, then he turns to see, and what he sees, what he looks at, interprets what he just heard. So in chapter 1 of the book, he hears this voice like a trumpet, and he turns And he sees the exalted Christ, the transfigured Christ. In chapter 5, he is told, he hears, that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he turns, and what he sees is not a lion, but a slaughtered lamb. So the lion and the lamb are not two different things. They're the same reality from two different perspectives. The same thing's going on here in chapter 7. Last week, John heard, he heard the number of the sealed. And the number was 144,000. Now he turns, and what he sees is a great multitude. This people whom he sees today is the same group as the 144,000. This scene interprets the victory of that army we looked at last week, which was arrayed sort of in a census pattern, the 144,000, arrayed for holy warfare. So this should come as no surprise, since last week we we labored the point that the 144,000 is the whole church. It's a symbolic number. It represents the fullness of the people of God. And so the army that last week was sealed for battle on earth is here seen victorious in heaven after the battering and the tribulations that are unleashed in the earth. Last week, we saw the church militant. This week, it's the church triumphant. 
the church militant on earth last week, the church triumphant in heaven this week, but it's the same church. So John sees this great multitude, which no one can number. This is the innumerable seed promised to Abraham 3,000 years ago. They're from every nation, the text says, every tribe, every people, every language. This is John's fourfold designation for the fullness of the world. Nation, tribe, people, language. For the universality. The Catholicity of the church. There's nothing like this institution that you have been baptized into. For scope, both geographic scope and historical scope. And it's a marvelous thing. It should rid us of provincialism. The church is full of wild and wonderful people who don't look, who don't talk, and who don't think like us. She is the cosmopolitan world city people. It's a grand and magnificent thing. John sees not just American Presbyterians, though they're in there somewhere. But he sees people from every tribe and every tongue and every land and every nation. This whole multitude that he envisions. Now remember, this is in the first century. There's no global international Christian church when John sees this vision. But he sees it. And this whole multitude standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Standing. That's the key. Even as the slain lamb was standing in chapter 5. Even as the question of the martyrs under the throne is, who can stand in the day of God's wrath? Now the holy army is seen standing. They can stand. This people can stand before this throne. And they're clothed in white robes, John says, which is a sign of purity. But here primarily, it's a sign of victory. A sign of kingdom Vindication. The martyrs under the altar as well had white robes, you'll remember. They received this white robe of triumph. And in addition, the text says they have palm branches. Palm branches are also for celebrating victory. So something like this is happening here. As Jesus was hailed with palms on his entry into the earthly Jerusalem... So here the redeemed hail him with palms in the heavenly temple. These palms were also used by Israel to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And and as such, they commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery and bondage. Plus, they commemorated God's preserving of the nation of Israel through the wilderness, bringing them to the land. That story culminates here. The the saints now, the Israel of God, celebrate the great exodus. The great redemption through the blood of Christ. You know, as an aside, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus turns to go to Jerusalem, at at the transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah appear, they are discussing with him, Luke says, his exodus. 
which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The exodus from Egypt is a, is a foreshadowing, a picture, a pointer forward to the great exodus accomplished by Jesus Christ through his blood. He has now accomplished the greater exodus. He has brought his people from, out of bondage. He's brought them through the wilderness of life with all of its vicissitudes and its persecution and its struggle and its uncertainty and its tribulation. And now they're seen victorious in heaven, even if like the lamb they follow, they were despised and poor and rejected and forsaken or even slaughtered on the earth. And in heaven, before the throne, they cry out with this voice, not of how long anymore, but of worship. They say salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. The end to the Lamb is very important. As throughout the book, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is given divine prerogatives. There's no book, perhaps, in the New Testament that has as exalted a view of Jesus Christ as the book of Revelation. The multitude stands before the throne and the Lamb. And salvation is an accomplishment of the one on the throne and the Lamb. And salvation here means victory or deliverance. It means the seal with which the saints were sealed in baptism has kept them. The seal we looked at last week has kept the faithful through the fire. Now this is a scene which I suppose can seem a bit far removed from one's daily life, but it shouldn't be. The battered and bruised church, the church in Iraq, the church in Syria, it needs to see that those who have been suffering who have been displaced, who have been exiled, who have been or are about to be killed. John says you need to see those people in this throng. In this throng. And so this multitude, they're hailing God and the Lamb as victors. In verse 11, Answering the church's praise is this whole heavenly entourage. All the angels, John says, the elders, the four living creatures. And notice, they fall down in verse 12. They start with an amen. They engage in a sevenfold doxology and they conclude with another amen. Wisdom and power and strength are the means by which God has wrought salvation. And blessing and honor and thanksgiving and glory are the response rendered for his victory. This is what John sees happening in the affliction undergone by ordinary simple Christians in Asia Minor. One of the first things the announcement of salvation, the announcement of the good news, the announcement of the gospel is when the, when the church speaks to the world is a declaration that the world is decidedly not the place which it narrates itself to be. It's a decidedly different place from the place which it describes itself as. It is the theater where this God has conquered in Jesus Christ. 
where the purposes of His grace and His salvation have broken in. It is the theater of the new creation. The undefeatable, unconquerable, unthwartable theater of God's glorious mercy and grace, which is destined for cosmic transformation. That is the place which the world is. And that's part of what John is doing throughout the whole book of Revelation. He's trying to say to the Christians in Asia Minor, re-narrate the world to yourself. Don't accept the given narrations. So that's the victory. The second point is the tribulation. So try to put yourself in John's shoes. Imagine all you had were the visions in the book to this point. And now for the first time in the book, human beings, non-celestial beings, are before the throne in worship. And you see this. And so there's a natural question here, which is, who are these people? And where do they come from? And one of the elders asked that question in verse 13. Surely a question John was pondering. Who are these clothed in white robes and where do they come from? Notice it's a two-part question. Who are they? Where do they come from? Meaning, it's about identity and origin. Who and where? And John gives this sort of respectful answer. He sort of says, sir... You and surely not I know. And so the angel tells John who they are. He says, these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. So throughout the book of Revelation, the great tribulation and those who come out of it are those who resist the seductions of empire. They resist its oppression and its persecution. And this tribulation is already beginning to afflict the churches of Asia Minor. That's what chapters 2 and 3 in the book are all about. This, the tribulation then cannot be, since it's already begun in Asia Minor, a merely future time period. Perhaps there'll be some future in, intensification, ratcheting up of the persecution. But it's conceived of as the whole time. Of course, if the company here, like the 144,000, is the whole church, then, of course, the tribulation applies to the whole church. Right? These people have white robes who've come out of the tribulation. In verse 9, the whole church has white robes. Earlier in the book, white robes were promised to the overcomers in the churches of Asia Minor. Let me put this another way. Christians in the first century, in the churches, in Asia Minor, are in this company, and thus they have come out of the Great Tribulation. Through many tribulations, we must enter, Jesus says, the kingdom of God. Life is hard. Very. And so, John's answered the, the where do they come from question, and the angel answers next the, uh, the who are these question. They, these are them who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This surely includes the idea that you're acquitted and pardoned in Christ's blood. But here the emphasis notices they washed their robes. They washed their robes. So the emphasis is on your, our obedience, our perseverance in union with Christ. Through the tribulations. 
Faithful witness even unto death if need be. The conquest and the victory of the Christian church is through suffering and apparent defeat. We conquer as the Lamb Jesus conquered by being conquered. This is precisely what the third century North African church father Tertullian. And Tertullian lived in the times when the visions in this book came crashing in on the church. When you could start to number the martyrs in hundreds and thousands and thousands. They came crashing in on his world with frightening intensity. And what does Tertullian say? He says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's the only religion which conquers by being annihilated. So please note what's happened in the book here. Just as there was this kind of military sort of vision of the Messiah as the Davidic lion, and John terms, he sees a slaughtered lamb, so it is with the church. Last week it was kind of a military vision. Onward Christian soldiers, 144,000, arrayed as an army for holy war. But that same people here is translated into the faithful martyr witnesses who conquer the way Jesus conquered. You know what that means? That means when you're standing over the mass graves of your slaughtered brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq, and you're at their funeral, you can sing right there, onward, Christian soldiers. This, this is precisely how Christianity moved from being an obscure, small sect into a movement which toppled the empire. That's the tribulation. The third point is the consummation. In verse 15, these, these, this multitude's before the throne. It says they serve God before the throne day and night in his temple. They've got white garments on. They're priests in the heavenly temple. And they serve God perpetually. And the text says, and here the text becomes one of the most moving and tender passages in Scripture. He who sits on the throne will shelter them. Literally, he will tabernacle or spread his tent over them with his presence. God, even though they're said to be in the temple, the image is is that God himself in his presence is their tabernacle. It is the divine presence of Christ with his church which constitutes it as a holy temple. And this is why at the end of the book, at the end of history, The New Jerusalem, the text says, has no temple. For the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. And so what we're viewing here is the church. Triumphant and protected, shielded, secure, cherished in its coming glory. And in verse 16, John in this, draws on this grand promise from Isaiah 49, which was the Old Testament reading today. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. They've come through the tribulation, and they're now permanently secure, protected from any possibility of harm. Life is always a frail and fragile thing. Everything we have, anything we have, 
is always exposed and susceptible at any minute. They are now secure beyond the probation of this world. The lamb, the text says, in the midst of the throne, that's where the slaughtered lamb is, enthroned, he will be their shepherd. This is really as stunning an image as the lion being seen as the lamb. Here the lamb, just a little lamb. What's a lamb? A lamb is a member of the flock. You are lambs. I am a lamb. But here the lamb has become the shepherd. Having shared our nature, having entered into our plight, having laid down his life for the sheep, the other lambs, he now shepherds from his regal throne throughout all eternity. This shepherd was your suffering brother, your fellow lamb. It's a magnificent picture. And John goes on and says he'll lead them to springs of living water. Three times in Revelation 21 and 22, this living water, life-giving water, is spoken of as associated with the, the end, the consummation, the new creation. This is water which refreshes and revives and revitalizes. And then there is this touching image. At the end of verse 17, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is very important. In this book, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty. Judgments. Judgments flow from this throne that we've looked at. But they're mediated judgments. They come through the the instruments of angels. They work themselves out through the brutal forces of history's empires. Through her armies. Through plagues and famines. Judgments flow out into history. But comfort, tender compassion, they come by direct divine agency. By God taking his own hand. God doesn't delegate this task, let me put it that way. He takes his own hand and he wipes sorrow off the brows of his beloved children who have suffered often horribly, often unjustly in this life. He takes his own hand. And this language is repeated. It's enlarged in, verse, in, ch- in chapter 21 where it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. No more funerals. No crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Every single tear of every single martyr, of every single faithful witness, every single tear which God stores up and numbers and treasures in his own bottle, the psalmist says, shall be wiped away. Death is swallowed up. Sorrow, sighing, the groaning of existence, the former things, the former agonies, they are 
according to the text, obliterated. They are no more. And so here, I want to say a brief word about how the visions of this book, especially the visions of the end, the visions of the consummation like we have here, how they correct, I think, a common approach that we take to human misery, especially in our circles, which is just not helpful. We reformed folks believe that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including evil. That is, we believe he has a comprehensive plan, an exhaustive plan that extends to all things, including human suffering and disasters. It's true. We believe that. But we often hold this view in a completely unhelpful fashion. Something horrific happens, and we try to figure out how it fits in with the plan of God. And when we can't, we dole out false comfort. Well, God has a plan for everything. Of course, he does have a plan. And my point here is not simply that we are not privy to it, though we are not privy to it. My point is that we think about these things in an unbiblical, a flat way, a two-dimensional way. We think that somehow, or at least some of my brothers and sisters, when listening to them, think that somehow the most horrific evils can be rationalized. They can be sort of schematized, domesticated. They can be fitted in to a glorious, but from our point of view, just a little too complex to grasp pattern. It's as if we believe that in the consummation, God is going to sit down with parents and say, look, it really was a good thing that your three-year-old daughter died of cancer. Let me show you how it fits into this really snazzy, complicated plan that I have. I'll show you how it fits together in the scheme of things. And your wife dying in the car crash, that connects up with the other points of the plan like this. And the Holocaust, and the genocide in Rwanda, and the tsunami, and this whole panoply of human disgrace. Let me show you the plan. It's no wonder people recoil at this. I, for one, don't want any explanations. This is not just wrong-headed. It's insidious and it's absurd. That somehow, when confronted with horrific evil, Calvinists become bare theists. God, the great programmer of all things, will somehow show us how all of this stuff fits into some plan. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't have a plan. Don't misunderstand me. But what I am saying, and this has always been inexplicable to me, a mystery, what we never, ever, ever seem to say about the plan is that at the very heart of whatever plan this is, is the thick mystery of a God who becomes flesh and becomes a slaughtered victim. A lamb, the God who endures violence and disorder 
and the venom of injustice and wickedness and alienation and desolation in his own being. The God who gets down to the bottom of human agony and mysteriously undoes it in the glory of the resurrection. That's the very heart of the plan. And yet when we talk about the plan, we talk about it like it's a computer program. The plan cannot be construed that way. It's a strange divine calculus where the chief victim at the heart of human history is God himself. This plan goes into the abyss of human misery. It doesn't stand on the sideline and say, don't worry, it's all going to be able to be connected together someday. The heart of this plan are these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a God who gets underneath human despair and drinks its venom so that he can obliterate death. So let it be said, just in case it's not said clearly, God hates death. Sometimes the way we talk, we're like, it's kind of cool that it happened. We'll figure it all out someday. No, no, it's not kind of cool. God hates death. He hates evil. He hates sin. He hates the consequences of sin. He is implacably opposed to these things. And that is why, beloved, that is why in scenes of the consummation like this text, we have no rationalizing of evil. God does not explain things here. He does not domesticate it into some grand pattern. You know what he does? He takes his hand and he wipes every single tear away. And he makes all things new. I don't want an explanation for why three-year-old children die of cancer. You know what I want? I want cancer obliterated. I want the child raised. I want the world made new. That's what the gospel offers. Instead, we get all this saccharine stuff. God does not schematize death or injustice. He obliterates them. And lest you say this is just a pious hope for the end of the world, I point you to one, Jesus of Nazareth. He swallows them up. He punishes evil in the only just wrath that there is, the wrath of the Lamb. I've said this before. Nobody likes wrath and judgment at the end of the age. But there must be justice. And so the question becomes, who's going to administer the justice? And the answer of Holy Scripture is the one who was judged, the slaughtered lamb. What wrath there is, is the wrath of the lamb. So it's inexplicable to us, it's a mystery, but you can leave it with this one. Whatever wrath people face, they are going to face from the slaughtered lamb from before his face. Now, this doesn't answer all our questions, I get that. It doesn't ease all our agony. Though it is cathartic for me to say it, I must say that. Uh, But at least it has the virtue 
at least it has the virtue of placing the slaughtered lamb at the heart of what we call the plan. And it has the virtue of being consistent with a scene like this one where evil is judged, not explained, and sorrow and sighing flee away. And that's all we need to know for now. The glory that is to be revealed and is revealed in this text is not worthy to be compared with the nightmarish, even the nightmarish suffering of this world. That's the gospel. It's unblinking. Nothing, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.